again to the Mudbugs for playing us in. I am Poser, and this is the Sneaky Good Pod, uh, coming to you today with a massive head cold. So I apologize in advance for uh, coughing into the mic and making your experience th- just a little bit more sneaky good. Uh, with me, as always, there is Chris producing this, making me sound not quite as terrible as I actually do. Hola. Who is apparently taking Spanish classes as well. <laughs> well, one of and my kids we is do... part Hispanic, so, you know. Well, see, there you go. And my wife teaches at an all-Hispanic school, so I'm the only one here who does not speak Spanish from the Texas contingent. <laughs> Coming to us from the wilds of French Canada, though, is Seth. Hola, mes amigos. You should go with bonjour. <laughs> That's what I was expecting. Bonjour. I mean, come on, man. We tee that up for you. <laughs> did, did I not get that right? Was that yeah. not how you no? That was, yeah. No, no, well, I guess technically right, but no, that was not. <laughs> we need to work on the accent. <laughs> yeah, yes. I think it's the accent. That's the problem. Yeah, the, the accent does matter. <laughs> uh, and then we also have Jake. Hola, como estas? See, there we go. A little better, yeah. Yeah, Maryland, a big hotbed of Latino culture. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I showed all my knowledge of four years of uh, middle school and high school Spanish right into that one one comment right there. That's all I have. Yeah, I I took Latin. That that didn't really – that doesn't play. I have not met anyone from Rome. Well, I have met people from Rome, but they spoke Italian. So (laughs) – you know, you know how the Vatican is still the official Latin yeah. holder, you know, and and they will actually add new words to Latin. And one of my favorite ones from like a couple of decades ago was discotheque actually made it into Latin oh, officially. So, yeah, because you're right. The It is the official language of, that, of the Vatican. Right. So it's not dead yet, people. Latin is hanging on, ready to make a comeback. Who needs to use the word discotheque in Latin, though? I really want to be, like, that's the one mass I'd want to go to. Like, I'm not Catholic, <laughs> but I want to go to that mass just to hear the priest use discotheque in Latin. That, that'd be worth it. Yeah. Ave la discotheque. <laughs> <laughs> but Latin might be making a comeback. But what did not make a comeback was Georgia Southern. And that was me trying to do a segue. Nice. It's, uh, LSU got up very early. And then got up even <laughs> even more. And Georgia Southern really was pretty much dead in the water from midway through the first quarter. That sound about right? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, first off, what's your big takeaway from the game? And we'll start with Jake on this one. They were everything they said they would be, uh, which is what we wanted. Uh, we wanted them to be exactly what they said they were going to be as far as the offense went. And they were. I think for the first half, or at least for like the first three or four drives, they ran one play from under center, which was a QB sneak. Other than that, they were all shotgun. They got the ball to tons of different guys by the end of the game. And, I mean, every every, every, every wide receiver, all the three main wide receivers had a touchdown. All the four running backs all got involved in both the pass game, and they all had their own drive, basically, essentially. They kind of gave each one of them their own drive for the first four or five drives of the game. The defense, they were vanilla, but they didn't need to be anything more. They did their job for some turnovers, which was uh, exciting to see, especially because I think we talked about how we didn't really expect that they'd be able to get many turnovers because Georgia Southern only had, like, five all last year, and LSU forced two. So, yeah, I mean, the offense was the big one, and they were everything that they 
playing they were going to be. They played fast. They got the ball to a bunch of different wide receivers. They were extremely efficient. Joe Burrow looked great. Couldn't have asked for more from week one. Now, one of the big things Mike Tyson used to always say is everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face. So LSU clearly had a plan, and they never got punched in the face, so they were able to execute that plan. So, Seth, do you think that LSU will be able to stick with this plan against Texas, who surely will fight back a little bit more than Georgia Southern? Well, I hope they do in the face of the very quick three and outs that are bound to occur, whether it comes against Texas or comes further down the road. Because those, you know, when you go tempo, those three and outs take off. 33 seconds of the clock and then it's like you think the world is is crumbling in so hopefully that they kind of stick with the plan and that's kind of what I thought my kind of big takeaway from the game was they're they are giving it a try like we've been hearing about it for years and everything's going to change and it just finally looks like they are going to do it they're going to stick with it and it there will be like you said there will be um valleys but I think with the talent we have there should be enough peaks to uh, to sustain for a whole season. Now, one of the things I noticed in the game was as much as they spread the ball out to all the receivers, especially the running backs, it didn't really seem so much that they spread it out as it seemed like each running back got a drive. Like first Edwards, Hilaire was the running back and he got every carry. And then, you know, Leonard Fournette came in and he got every carry and Emery came in and that was his drive. Do you think that's something they're going to, keep doing or do you think this was just sort of everybody's audition i i think it could be an audition type thing um but as we go into the season you know maybe just to throw some defense a little more a little bit of a monkey wrench is to use them at different type different parts within the same drive That's so now when you know yeah when 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 clyde goes in the game you know these are the certain plays and the defense, if he stays in for the whole drive, then the defense kind of can catch their breath and, and um, kind of communicate what plays are about to happen. But when you kind of start changing the running backs and, and each one of them, you know, as we saw, we kind of knew about this just from, this, uh, from all the talk from the summer and the spring, but we kind of saw it how different each one of them are. They're all going to give you different type of concepts and you can run with them. So it'll be interesting to see if they do use them differently on the same drive. I think that would be important. Yeah, because everybody had their moments, but at the end of the day, I think LSU only rushed for about four yards of carry, which isn't that impressive, especially against Georgia Southern. You know, you'd like to see a bigger number than that. But everybody kind of had a moment. You know, there were some times, Edwards Hilaire, especially early on in the game, just looked unstoppable in those first two drives. I think the second touchdown drive, he touched the ball on every play. So it, it still showed that even though LSU was going tempo, we can still play smash mouth which I thought was kind of a nifty little thing they did. It's like, hey, this is still fast tempo, but hey, we're still LSU. We can still, you know, strangle the life out of you. Emery didn't have a ton of yards, but he had one or two moves in space, which showed exactly why he was a five-star recruit. And was there anyone outside of the running? We don't have to limit this to the running backs. Was there anyone that really impressed you in the game that you think going forward saying, oh, this is something – that we could really build off of. Not to like stick with the runbacks for a moment, but because I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. 
you were right that they didn't rush for many yards per carry, but I think if you added up all their, you know, receiving yards, basically they averaged about like a first down per catch. And so in this offense, I'm not saying you can, you're going to win like, or go 12 and or whatever, if you're rushing for like four yards a carry every game, because you're not, you're going to have to be better. But the running backs catching the ball is going to operate more as essentially the running game. If this is how they want to play. And so I think that'll be something to look at throughout the whole year is how successful are the backs in the pass game. And they were really successful here. They all, you know, Emory had a catch for about 17 yards on one screen. Fournette had a few. Edward Teeler had a few. And so I think, you know, the screen game, especially, and not even just the screen game, but, you know, and maybe if they get them in just routes, that'll be something to look at that could be more important than just, you know, what their rushing towards are. I think they, the running backs in total, I think it ended up, the catches ended up being like 30% of their touches. I don't know the numbers for sure, but I'm willing to bet that's probably a lot higher than it's been for LSU in the past, as far as if what, you know, running backs. Seems like yeah, a fair guess. So, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, like, I'm, I probably in the past, especially when with, like, Fournette or whatever, probably was like 90% tilted towards them running it. And so, again, like, I definitely, and they'll definitely need to run better, and, you know, the O-line will need to, move more, move the defensive line more in running situations. It's just going to happen that way. There will be times where they probably need to run some clock a bit or maybe give the defense a breather, and so that will present itself where they'll have to run the ball better. But I do think it'll be – it won't to me, it won't be the same as it's been in previous years or in you know, different offenses where LSU pretty much had to be running for five yards a carry or more if they were going to be a successful offense. Seth, was there anyone who impressed you? Doesn't have to be a running back. We, I know, kind of taking an odd course here, talking about running backs when everybody wants to talk about the receivers or Joe Burrow. Well, I'll, I'll probably say Joe Burrow because, I mean, he was pretty close to perfect. I thought the ball placement was very, very good, and that was probably the most impressive part. Was it felt like you put the ball where it needed to be? You know, the first touchdown to Jefferson on the RPO. You know, the DB's kind of draped over him, and he puts it right. Oh, sorry, is the first touchdown to Chase? I don't remember now. Yeah, on Chase, the, scored, the, the Chase scored the first touchdown. Yeah, right. So on, on, on a skinny to Chase, you know, the DB is, is in pretty good position, and he's able to put the ball just in front, and Chase snags it. There's the deep uh, in route to Marshall for, I think, I think it was Marshall's third touchdown was that the uh, one where everyone was set up the block when, no no i think maybe that was the second one i don't remember because that play call was, yeah that, that was the second touchdown i'm looking at now that three yard pass that play yeah. call was so sexy yeah it was nice that's <laughs> the uh the patriots uh two-point conversion in the uh, super bowl uh when they tied it against atlanta so and but but the one i'm talking about is the one after i guess in the end zone there yeah. there was two in the end zone to Marshall. So it was the first one on that little corner curl route. And then the third one was about like a 12 yard in route. Yeah. And the funny thing just, is we have to yeah. distinguish between Ter- Terrence Marshall. Yeah, it's crazy. That's pretty fun. So he puts it over, you know, just barely over the linebackers fingertips and it drops right into Marshall's hands uh, in stride in the end zone. There was a lot of balls like that. The one to Thaddeus Moss down the field was, was a beauty. Mm-hmm. 
the the pocket movement was really good. I kind of have a problem with us getting very excited about checkdowns because okay, yeah, it's great that checkdowns should be neutral. They should they're not positive or they're not negative, you know, because we can't tell, you know, without like the coach's film whether he missed an open receiver and then had to check it down or he did made a great play where he moved around in the pocket and no one was actually open and he checked it down. So we don't, we don't know because LSU ran four verts a few times and he checked it down. I think all those times and it's like, that's great. We're getting yards out of it, but it's possible. I'm not saying this happened, but it's possible that we didn't miss a bigger plays down the field. So let's not, I just, it's something, something that I, that I've been reading about the checkdowns recently that kind of made me a little, I have to get my take off there. No, I, I think that's fair, but I think it's also situational when you're, you know, you're opening up a 42 to three first half lead. I think the occasional check down is kind of the good call because you don't need the big play because they were just going to happen. I, I mean, right? No, I, I totally understand it. And there was a good one, you know, a lot of people were talking about the one, and you, you brought it up, the one where John Emery made that dude miss in the flat. That was really good pocket movement in the sense where, okay, yes, there's a check down. Yes, we don't know, you know, did he miss the post for a touchdown? We don't know. We don't have the coach's film, but it's okay. Because he moves so well in the pocket, and what I thought was one of the coolest things is he knew where all five of his eligible receivers were at every moment in time. Because he just kind of instinctively knew, well, instinctively, obviously they practice it a lot, that even though he was kind of moving to his left, Emery runs the bubble to the right side and he just kind of opens his hips and throws it to him without looking at Cause he just knows where he is. Cause they, they built that into him, which I thought was really interesting. All right. I don't want to belabor too much on the Georgia Southern game. We, we beat them 55 to three. Um, it's a much bigger margin than we expected. Cause I think we, we were talking about covering, but not covering like this, but really this is the season opener in the real sense. Like that was to use in like the restaurant terminology. That was the soft open. You know, this is the grand opening, the big game against Texas. And the question is, can LSU do the same things against Texas? Clearly they're not going to win by 52 points. I don't think anyone expects that, but are we going to still see the same offense? Um, is the defense, you know, well, they're not going to hold them under 100 yards, but are we going to see that kind of attack? Is Stingley going to be that big of a weapon in special teams? How do you kind of see this game going? What are the big matchups for you? And we'll start with Seth this time because, you know, Jake got to start last time. I think an interesting one will be what kind of personnel LSU plays on defense, at least against. So Texas is going to run mainly, like LSU, 11 personnel, so three receivers and a tight end. We didn't see Kerry Vincent almost at all against Georgia Southern, and that's because they wanted to put the bigger body of whoever they they were playing at at the F linebacker position because it was a three-back attack that they faced. But now they're, it's the complete opposite, and they're going to have slot receivers. And, in fact, they're going to have a good slot receiver in Devin Duvernay. So we will finally see Carrie Vincent, and I think that's a matchup that I would love to see is Carrie Vincent versus Devin Duvernay in the slot. Jake? I think it's going to come down to te- te- how LSU handles Texas's running game. I think the pass is going to be a wash. I think Sam Ellinger is a very good QB, and Texas has a very, very good 
receiving court. Colin Johnson is a freak. Duvernay is very good. I think LSU's defensive backfield is going to get their plays, and I think Colin Johnson is going to get his. And so I think that'll probably end up being about a wash. I think the key will be the run game for Texas. Keonta Ingram is very good, but beyond that, Texas doesn't have much at running back. And so if LSU can force Texas into pass situations just often and second and eights and third and sevens, as good as Texas's wide receivers aren't as good as Ellinger is, it's going to be really, really hard to beat that defensive backfield in third and long situations and having to you know, consistently make big plays against it. Like, they'll get theirs in, I think, advantageous situations and even probably in, you know, some third and long situations. There will be plays that they're just going to make. But if LSU can stop the Texas run game, which I think they should, this D-line is what the coaching staff has been saying, what we're expecting. I think they should be able to stop the Texas run game. And so if they do that, I think that's the key to the game on that side of the ball. Yeah, I I mean, I don't want to whistle past the graveyard of this one, but Texas' run game is really taking a hit with injuries. They're almost in crisis mode. I think they're down to one scholarship running back. Yeah, that's correct. And that's, I mean, for your, your second game of the season, that's unfathomable. Now it's a really good running back. Uh, Keontae Ingram, you know, had a, you know, went 11 carries for 78 yards and a touchdown. So, and he also can catch the ball out of the backfield. So he's, he's a load, but man, the lack of depth is really going to hurt them. I think what you might see is Ingram getting his yards in the first and second quarter, but come the second half, tired legs, just not having any relief is going to take its toll, particularly with the way LSU hits. And one of the things I've really liked in the lead up to this game is how much LSU has embraced that it's a big game. And they kind of have that swagger that the 2011 team had where they're not afraid to talk big. And, you know, you have Chase on out there uh, saying that he remembers Ellinger from the recruiting circuit and that he's not that good. This is not an LSU team that's walking into Texas quietly. They're, they're, they're t- they are writing a bunch of checks because they expect them to clear. Is anyone else getting the same feeling out of this team, or do you yeah. think they should, you know, why? If, if, look, if they are as good as we want them to be, and if they're as good as they claim to be, it's not going to be an issue, you know? I mean, I got no problem with it because, I mean, what, like, what's the worst that happens? Like, that, like Texas ain't up for this game as is? Yeah, that's kind of always my thing about talking. It's the same thing that happens every week of the Alabama game when LSU, like, dares to be a little bit confident or whatever. And that's like, well, they're giving them bullets and bullets. I'm like, man, if, you, if they're not up for this game, that's a problem. Yeah, that's crazy talk. Everybody's up for I mean, and also, I like that Texas is throwing shade. Yeah. I like that Texas is wearing their DBU shirts. I think that's, you know, that's all in good fun. This is exactly what you should do before a big out-of-conference game. You should try and stoke those fires, particularly because LSU and Texas – the schools are not very far apart. And so LSU fans probably know a few Texas fans. And I mean, I live in Texas, so I know a lot of Texas fans, but Texas fans know a few LSU fans and we haven't played a regular season game since the fifties. So this is a bit of a long time coming, even if Texas is only playing this game, despite a and which is funny. <laughs> I realized uh, Texas today, I, I looked it up and Texas has, 
A&M in their fight song. They have a dig on A&M in their fight song. I did not know that. Yeah, and A&M digs at Texas, which we all know. Um, I'm sure they're busy rewriting that to say LSU at any point. I think they're actually <laughs> going to put 74-72 in their fight song, as that is the greatest <laughs> moment in A&M history. It's, it's like it's the only game they've won in the past hundred years is that game. Hey, look, you know, if you look at the history, they lose, you know, two out of every three games against LSU, two out of th- every th- three games against Texas. You know, you would hype up your few wins as well. That's, that's what you got to do. I mean, honestly, what it does is it promotes us. It, you know, it basically shows that LSU was the upper hand in the rivalry. You know, it's not like like when LSU beat Kentucky on uh, the Bluegrass Miracle. Clearly, we still talk about the Bluegrass Miracle because it was, you know, an amazing play kind of stuff. But no one really trash talks Kentucky about it. Like, at the same time, it was it was Kentucky. We shouldn't have been losing that game in the first place. Like, that was embarrassing. The other thing I think is that these two programs are, in a lot of ways, I think, similar. You oh, know, I agree. They're, they're both incredibly successful programs. They're both two of the premier programs in college football. And as much as I think Texas fans will get mad at this, they live in the shadow of their rival. That's, believe uh-huh. it or not, that is tomorrow's column. So by the time <laughs> this pod drops, there will be an article up on Adam the Valley Shook about that very same thing. Like that, as great as Texas has been, you kind of get the sense that they should be a little bit more. They've only won five conference titles in what I'll call the expansion era, which is 1992 on. Like, you know, once the conferences started blowing up, Texas has only, you know, won five titles in what I would call the modern era of football. And they've only won three Big 12 titles. Oklahoma's won a dozen. Yeah. Wow. You know, like um, the, the rivalry is, compa- is compa- yeah. Like, it's very, like the game, the rivalry itself. Is very, like Texas leads the all-time series by like 15. That's mostly because Texas beat them a bunch like before the war. Like the rivalry is very competitive, but as far as like titles and stuff won and Heisman winners and all that stuff, OU's won a lot more. <laughs> yeah, I mean Texas has won the same LSU and Alabama, obviously. Yeah, and Texas has won the same number of national championships that LSU has. We each have four. And yeah, so I think Texas has a has more in common with LSU than they would like to admit that they are the the second fiddle of their conference. And look, they're a really great program. Look, I'm saying LSU is the second fiddle of the SEC. So, I mean, I'm throwing myself in there. But yeah, like it's a it is very frustrating to have one of uh, have a team like Bama just be so dominant over the past 20 years. And as successful as you are, all your fan base can talk about is, "Well, yeah, well, look at Bama." And that's even kind of what Texas had, even when they had that great run under Mac Brown. It was like, yeah, things are great. We're winning 10 games every year, but, you know, we're not winning the national titles, you know, or we're not winning the Big 12. Oklahoma is until Vince Young showed up, and, Oklahoma you know, single-handedly. Really like, and Oklahoma beat them really bad in some Like, you think, like, LSU's run against Alabama is bad. Oklahoma hung, like, 60 on Texas multiple times. During that, like, run in the 2000s. And they also beat them. I mean, it was only 12 nothing, but Adrian Peterson ran for, like, 750 yards on them, which was embarrassing because, you know, it's... Adrian I think, yeah, <laughs> si- since 2000, I'm looking here, Oklahoma has beaten Texas four times by over 40 points. 
So yeah, you're right. We haven't we haven't gotten that far yet with yeah. Alabama. Like it's bad, but like, like yeah, no. like ten win years, and Oklahoma will beat them by like fifty points. Yeah, 63-21. That is, I I don't I don't think I'd be an LSU fan anymore if Alabama was beating us that badly. Yeah, I mean. Twenty-one to nothing hurts, but theirs too. Like they beat when they won the title, they won by like thirty-three, and they beat them like even in 08, when OU went to the championship game, Texas beat them by ten. Yeah, forty-five, thirty-five. And that in that year was just like the the yeah. really true like NASA playoff year. Like that should have been like a fourteen playoff year. But so yeah, I mean, because what's weird is, is that Texas cool. has interesting. Texas has won the third most games of any FBS program. They're number three. Bama might catch them this year, but still, like, they're number three right now. That's it. They have over 900 wins. LSU was just shy of 800. We'll win our 800th game this year. And we're 12th all-time FBS. I mean, that's the difference between third and 12th. Yet for all those wins, it's like the big prize just always kind of eludes Texas. It's really weird. It's it. They've really had a frustrating history when you look at it. Like it's just, they're always tantalizingly close. And you know, their three national, three of their national titles were within a ten-year span. You know, that royal guy was pretty good. Yeah, that's basically Texas is two like really great runs with two coaches. I mean, and not they haven't had like good runs like elsewhere. Also, like Fred Akers one had a really good run. You know, but for the most part, it's Daryl Royal had a monster run where he won multiple national titles and could, you know, could have won one or two more. They had like two. Yeah, LSU cost them one in 63. Four one loss seasons. Yeah, they were going to win one in 63 until LSU beat them. So we cost them one. That's right. In your face, Texas. Uh, (laughs) But look, with Mac, Mac, they won one and you could argue should have won two more i think in 08 you could have said they were the best team in the country and then 09 they lost obviously the national championship to bama where if colt hadn't got hurt yeah colt hadn't uh, got hurt yeah look history isn't going to be playing on the field like it's you know as at the end of the day i think both programs come into this hey these are two big blue blood programs and i don't think anyone in lsu walks into the dkr being like oh my god we've never seen a stadium like this before we've never seen you know we've never seen a crowd like this and i don't think texas expects lsu to come in intimidated because that'd be silly but i think what is going to play is first off texas running back depth and also still texas lost a lot of talent off of last year's defense and they need to figure out they need to figure out answers and quick and they looked really good against Louisiana Tech. You know, they absolutely dominated that game. I mean, I know La Tech drove across the 50 a couple times and did get points. But still, that was a pretty thorough, you know, ass-kicking there. So Texas has got to feel pretty confident, just like LSU feels pretty confident with their big win. But this is where we find out if that first game was an illusion of whether those were real answers or that was just you bullying, you know, the 90-pound wuss. Well, that was my question. Looking at the job the LSU offensive line did against Georgia Southern, and again, you know, the caveat that it's Georgia Southern, but they manhandled them and had their way with them. And the play that I kept going back to was that fourth and one that Leonard Fournette picked up more than just the one. I mean, they blew a hole wide open for him. 
do you think that they're going to be able to do similar things against a Texas defense that gave up 400 yards to La Tech? I mean, th- that's yeah. what they're saying. You know, in the offseason, they're saying the offensive line is so improved. But you know what? I'll just take it if they can just get the yard. How about instead of blowing yeah. and getting a, a whole bunch of yards, but on fourth and one, they can get one yard. That's all I want. Yeah. It, it'll be nice to see um, Sadiq Charles will play this week. He didn't play last week. That That's a, a really good player that'll come in uh, fresh. Yeah. So that'll add to it, I think. And also, Texas is going to blitz a lot. Against Louisiana Tech, they had to blitz to create pressure. They really didn't create pressure just from their standard four-man rush that often. Um, that's a good sign for offensive line. And also, I think if you blitz Joe Burrow, he should, if he's the quarterback I think he is, he should eat you alive. Yeah, I hope so. And they have. No, I, was, I mean, I was thinking, I think if this is the offense we want it to be, they need to score like four or five touchdowns at least. I just think if you're not going to be putting up, like, I'm not saying Texas is running out there with like the little sisters of poor defense or anything, but this is a team that is was the worst in FBS in returning production. And most of that was because they lost so much from that defense. If LSU's not hanging up 35 at least and, like, they're kicking field goals, and I think that's a problem. Like, I, I to me, it's – if this is an elite, great offense, they should put up points on them, and it should be a lot. I'm not saying they have to put up 50, but, like, at minimum 35, 38, something like that. I think that's got to be – they should. You know, it's it's an offense for LSU returning pretty all of its skill position players and, you know, a senior QB and that, you know, has a bunch of weapons against the Texas defense that is just changing out a lot of guys that has, as Pudder said, issue getting guys to the QB. So, to me, yeah, I, I, I'm not like one – I don't like, like to put like ultimatums out there, but – if they're in the twenties, I think it, the game on this past Saturday might have been a mirage. Seth, do they need to score thirty? I wonder. I mean, we talked about the if they need to score thirty to win the game, maybe not. But I, I'm with Jake that it would. <laughs> this is what this offense is supposed to do against teams that are worse than us talent-wise. We're supposed to score thirty points. So, yeah, we, we should go up there and score 30 points. They're not great on defense. Like you said, the running back situation means on offense there might be issues. Now, I think they can mitigate that a little bit by using Ellinger in the run game because he's, I mean, sometimes he looks like a running back. They were going to have to, they're going to have to make a decision and say, okay, well, we have to run our quarterback and he's going to take some hits. Man, we're playing against LSU, and he's going to take some hits, like you got, like you're talking about. LSU is hitting people hard these days, so they're going to have to do some things that are a little maybe not what they would love to do, especially if they had running back depth to mitigate those kind of issues that they're going to have. Now, the great equalizer is always a great quarterback, and I'm not going to go as far as Chase on and say that Ellinger is overrated. <laughs> And isn't that good? Sam Ellinger is a really good quarterback. I think he's one of the top 10 quarterbacks in the country. 
And he didn't quite have the game that Burrow did, but he opened up 28 for 38 for 276 yards and four touchdowns. So it was in the same ballpark. So if Texas is going to win this game, they need Ellinger to be the best quarterback on the field. Can he be the best quarterback on the field given LSU's pass rush and its secondary? I think that's more depending on how you feel about Burrow. And I think I feel pretty good about Burrow again, just based on just based on the accuracy. He's like I said, he was throwing the ball to the receiver's hands and stride. It was really nice to see. And I don't think Ellinger can do that, even though like I agree, very good quarterback. I think a lot of his value comes from the fact that he's uh, you know a big body who can run. And I think that LSU can get it themselves into situations where they can deal with the quarterback run and like Jake said earlier force them to throw the ball where we can match up with them unlike most teams that they'll see on the schedule we can match up with them man to man so I'm excited to see uh, to see that I, I think Elger can be the best QB on the field but I, I think it depends on the scenario in which it kind of happens like I think if Ellinger is the best QB on the field in a game where he has, like, a huge, just like he plays out of his mind, but Burrell still plays great, in a weird way, I think that still might be, like, enough for LSU. Because I think if Joe, if Joe Burrow has a great game, I think LSU probably wins, even if Ellinger plays crazy great. I think if he's the best QB on the field because Joe Burrow played poorly, then that's more of, like, where the issue comes in. You know, because I mean, like he can have, I mean, huge games. It's, I mean, against Oklahoma last year. Yes, I mean, it was Oklahoma still. He threw for three fourteen with two touchdowns and ran for seventy two. He threw for three forty nine against them in the Big Twelve title game, which they lost. So, like, I mean, he can have huge games, and he's definitely capable of it. I think it's if Joe Burrow plays great and has a great game, I think that's enough for LSU. I think. That gets the job done for LSU, no matter how well Ellinger plays. I mean, maybe not. I mean, like, a great QB can always tilt things, but I just think with LSU's defense and then what they have on offense when, you know, Joe Burrow can play great, I think that's enough. It's if it becomes, like, lopsided in the matchup is where it would probably get dicey for LSU. All right, we'll, we'll get into picks in just a second, but let's take a, you know, take a step back. Let's take a look at the entire SEC for a second. And... It was a weird week one. It was probably one of the worst week one. Forget week one. One of the worst weeks the SEC has had in a long time. But what was weird about it is the top of the conference dominated, uh, except for maybe Auburn, but they still won. But the bottom of the conference just got absolutely destroyed. And I, I don't mean, had- understand. I do not understand why you would schedule a game to open your season at Wyoming. Yeah. That's that's just bad. And the thing is, what's weird about Missouri is is Bryant looked really good. He threw for over yeah. 350 yards. The offense moved. I mean, I just think that was one of those, like, don't play games in Wyoming. Or, yeah, sort of like exactly. how weird things happen in El Paso. I know if we yeah. played UTEP. I honestly don't really going f- to Nevada. Yeah, like that one didn't really feel like an indictment of Mizzou. That just felt like an indictment of the scheduling. I'm, yeah, I'm not, but now you got a loss. Yeah, so. now you have a loss, yeah. I, I think a lot of it was just how bad the East is. 
I mean, we knew the West, the bottom two teams of the West were going to be bad, Ole Miss and Arkansas. But really, this isn't that the SEC was terrible. It's that the entire SEC East that is not Georgia is terrible. To me, it's like, what about the SEC, like, really surprised anybody from this week? We knew the top teams in the conference were amazing, and that pretty much showed itself. And we knew that, like, Arkansas and Ole Miss were bad. Like, yeah. Ole Miss was an underdog against Memphis. Why were you surprised they lost? They covered, by the way. I would just like to say my pocketbook appreciates that. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, I, mean, like yeah, I mean, Missouri, like, losing to Wyoming is really bad. That's a bad look, absolutely. But other than that, South Carolina's loss to UNC was not good, especially the way it happened. But it's not as if a team like South Carolina – losing on the road to North Carolina is such a huge sort of shock. Man, the South Carolina game. Like, it's just this huge, like, oh, my God. I mean, it's like, should they have won? Yeah. They They, absolutely should have won that game. Definitely. Uh, Will Muschamp went from, hey, things are looking pretty good in South Carolina to, oh, my God, this guy, I'm not sure he can coach. They threw that game away. I mean, they had that game won and salted away and essentially handed it to North Carolina. They punted twice on fourth and short on the other side of the 50 uh, in, the uh, fourth stop, stop, stop. in the fourth quarter. Oh, my God. It was the first time they did it, I was angry. The second time they did it, I, I mean, I just lost it. I'm like, what are you doing? And now and then, Brantley might be out yeah. for the season. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, he hurt his foot on the game's final play, and now might be – they've diagnosed he's going to be out six to eight weeks, and he might require surgery. If he needs surgery, oh. that's the end of the senior year. South Carolina, that loss went from bad to worse. They, they should sue Mac Brown for screwing up the clock. So they had to <laughs> I was going to that Oh, my God. That was <laughs> – Come on. You really had to do a stunt? <laughs> that was unbelievable. I think you have to fire Mac Brown. If they lose, let's say South Carolina, so South Carolina gets the ball back. Uh, they take a sack, right, to end the game. But what if they hit the Hail Mary? You have to fire Mac Brown on the spot, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, yeah. giving them a chance was unbelievable. Yeah, just what a poorly coached game. But South Carolina, I, I came out of that game thinking South Carolina was the better team. They just gave it away. And now that'll turn us over to the picks for this week. I don't want to go through every game again. But we'll just look at the big uh, ones. Wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. No one said anything about Tennessee yet. God, uh, they're, ter- they're terrible. <laughs> there you go. You said something about Tennessee. I think, that's, I think that's what got everyone on the SEC is Tennessee losing to, by whatever to Georgia State. And which my response is, what did you expect from Tennessee? I expected them to beat Georgia State. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sure. But, like, we're going on, like, 11 years now of Tennessee just being – the European soccer of college football and how ridiculous <laughs> their drama is. I mean, like, Tennessee's had, like, two different coup d'etats in, like, ten years or whatever. What's crazy is, like, they were losing They were losing the game, and then they made this comeback, and they took the lead, like, midway through the fourth quarter. <laughs> yeah, then all of a sudden they got down by, like, 15 in, like, five minutes. Yeah, you're like, okay, they took the lead back. You know, crisis over. You know, the better team has now asserted itself, and you thought that was kind of it. Yeah, and then they go down by, like, 15. It was unbelievable. Normally, that's when the other, you know, the little guy wilts. You know, when the big guy 
comes back in the fourth. But no, that was just setting them up for an even more painful loss. Man, Tennessee is, I, I don't understand how they're this bad. It's Georgia State. I mean, they won two games last year. I'd also like to bring up a point about Arkansas, who we already know is bad, but who did win against Portland State. State. Yeah. Um, but the problem that I have with those damn hogs is that because they were in a game with Portland State and they won, I think, 20 to 13, and instead of blowing them out and then ESPN oh, yeah. cutting loose early and getting to the LSU game for the first drive, I did not see the first drive of the LSU game like a bunch of us didn't. Even worse, ESPN Plus, which I pay extra for, normally has dedicated feeds to the game. So if one game's running long, so when the Arkansas game was running long, I was like, oh, I'll go to the app and I'll just watch the LSU feed until you know the actual broadcast picks up. Nope. There was no LSU feed. It was stuck. Well, there was one, but if you clicked on the button, it says game will kick off at you know seven you know seven thirty or whatever the time of kickoff was. So even paying for the app did not allow you to watch the first drive. Very but frustrating. Arkansas, though. Yeah. Even, well, we, even worse was that when Portland State ran their last play and like didn't work, so the game was over. They still proceeded to stick for another two minutes with Arkansas kneeling the ball down. It's like hey, at that I, at I, that I point I think like trust. we were going to miss the drive, but we missed the touchdown because <laughs> at least I could have seen the actual touchdown play. But we still missed it because I need to see Arkansas kneel the ball down and the coaches shake hands. Well, let's be honest, we weren't sure that Arkansas could competently kneel the football, so. <laughs> All right, so now that we've kicked them while we're down, we will say with that to looking at next week, Arkansas. Hey, I've got actually... one thing real quick, just kind of right. touching upon this issue that we have with missing the opening drive. Do we think ESPN is ever going to come to the realization that football games are lasting longer than three hours? Like ever? No. No. Yeah, no. That's just at no. some point. It's crazy. But yeah. I, what I don't understand is how the NFL games, I mean, I'm sh- sure there's a probably, probably a, a reasonable explanation, but how the NFL games last so much uh, less time than a college game. I don't understand. They're playing the same sport. Uh, there's a lot of clock issues. There's more clock stoppages in college. And there's more also opportunity college. because of those clock stoppages for the network to go to commercial. That's the big reason. And also there's the whole first down thing. So yeah, there's no clock. Yeah, college, what college half times run longer because of like bands and stuff like that. I, which, how, is my, which is my excuse to plug Ross Dellinger mentioning um, when he covered Jacksonville State that the band would play for like 45 minutes sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> that was a great story. <laughs> yeah. They would just keep playing even though the team got penalties and they just didn't care. And the coaches over there complaining to the band director. The band director's like, "Yeah, whatever, dude." Yeah, guys, people are here to see us. No, you know, <laughs> know who the show is. Yeah, college halftimes, I feel like, like NFL halftimes, I think, are usually like a hard set, about 15 minutes. College halftimes, you know, sometimes are like 10 minutes longer. Especially lately, it feels like they've been going longer, but I don't know, maybe I'm just making that up. They're supposed to be 20 minutes, but we'll see if they... But it was, speaking of halftime, it was nice of ESPN Plus after I said how terrible they were. They did show you the LSU of halftime. So if you were sitting at home, you were able to watch the Golden golden Band from Tigerland uh, free a princess. It was really weird. Um, 
<laughs> and the sound was terrible. So you couldn't really follow what was going on. You couldn't hear the stadium mic. And there was almost no sound on the field. So you had to crank it way up. And the crowd was almost louder than the band. But I appreciate the attempt. Now, next week, SEC play officially begins with the worst game of the season, Arkansas at Ole Miss. Ugh. Which, in a weird way, is a huge game because this is the one. This is the game that each of those teams have circled as the game they've got to win. You know, our, our good pal Bunky Perkins always likes to mention that Arkansas Ole Miss games are the games where no one really wins. Like even the team who wins just comes away feeling worse about themselves. And I feel like this weekend that is true to like the nth degree. Like no one is going to come away feeling good about themselves here. I mean, because as as bad as the SEC East is, I think these are still the two worst teams in the SEC. The loser of this game is staring at 0-8 in the face, and they know it. So we should see some pretty exciting, desperate, terrible football. I like Chad Morris's offense. So I, I just going by that, I'm going to say that Arkansas wins, but... Like Jake said, I mean, does anybody really win? And the only other game of real, the only game of note outside of the LSU game is Texas A&M is traveling to Clemson. And Clemson is now being treated like Bama. They are a monster favorite. It's 17 and a half points right now. Do you think Vegas is being a little bit too optimistic on Clemson, even though Clemson did look really good? Trevor Lawrence was kind of quietly pretty bad against Georgia Tech. He threw two picks. And uh, I don't think it's like yards per 10 numbers are great either. If he gets back to playing like Trevor Lawrence, I think, yeah, Clemson will probably cover. I just, I, I think that if you're, like, you're never going to be able to deal with those wide receivers and him when he's playing great. And so what you really need is to, you know, get after the QB, and A&M lost so much from that front. Just about everybody on the defensive line yeah. and yeah. So all of like, their linebackers. Yeah, so it's like if you're not going to get after the quarterback, good luck trying to stop those wide receivers. But they assure us they'll be a lot better because the players they didn't play last year were better than the guys that played ahead of them, which makes no sense, but that's Obviously. the line we're going with. Of course. I just think it's interesting. I mean, Kellamond looked great against Texas State. I want to see if he looks – I mean, I don't think he's going to look as good, obviously, but if he still looks really good, I think that makes it interesting for a Texas A&M season. Uh, I think that gives them a chance in some games that we kind of thought were losses for them if he's able to play and truly be a, you know, an elite kind of QB. Seth, what do you th- what's your read on the game last year? A&M played it pretty close. They got within yeah, four I, points. Yeah, I thought that it was close. It was in, you know, uh, in College Station. It was before Lawrence took over. And I, I kind of think that, you know, I'm not a, I wasn't a, not a great big Kelly Bryant fan, especially compared to, to uh, Trevor Lawrence. And, and I kind of think that if Lawrence was already the start in that game, it's probably more of a blowout. So this year... Lawrence being the starter, the game is in Clemson. I, I, I think 17 is probably just about right. 
Now, here's a scenario. Let's say Clemson wins, which I think everyone in the country thinks just because Clemson's really, really good. But let's say it's another really close game. If uh, it's a single score game, Clemson, you know, holds on for dear life, wins by six points. Is that loss, but a close loss, enough to really propel the A&M hype and make them feel good about themselves and kind of launch them in to contender status in the SEC this year? Or if they lose big, is it so demoralizing that they're staring, you know, seven and five in the face? In other words, how important... How, how important do we feel this game is for A&M? I think they'll probably be fine either way. I don't, I don't think – I think the team itself, I think even if they get blown out, I don't – I think they'll end up being all right. I don't know if it'll make, like, a huge impact one or another on their season. I feel like if – from, like, the outside, though, it feels like people are just, like, so invested and have so much on the line that A&M is, like, the next big thing that, like, if, yeah, if they lose by, like, six to Clemson – at Clemson, it's going to be as like essentially a win. It's like I'm, I, I just, I'm just like dreading the the possibility of that because I don't know. It just feels like people. There are some people just really have a lot on the line. That A and M is like really this huge looming threat. Yeah, I think even if they keep it close, they're man. They they still gotta go and play tough teams later on in the schedule, and I don't. I just don't know. I don't know even if they keep it that close if they're still that good to make the leap and beat Alabama and beat Georgia and beat LSU and then even Auburn, uh, Mississippi State, I don't, South Carolina. I know maybe they might bounce back. South Carolina looking a lot back. easier all of a sudden. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But you know, if, if the kid bounce, if the kid comes back from injury, maybe it's a different story by the time they play them. So I don't know. I think the schedule is still really, really tough for them. Uh, and just just a moral victory, I don't think I don't think does it uh, against Clemson. All right. Well, that is you know it'll be a nice appetizer. So at your tailgate, you know you can watch that game in the afternoon before you hit the main event, which would be the LSU game. But before then, we go to the mailbag. What do we got, Chris? Okay, Vinny Bartles wants to know what was the biggest disappointment of Week One: Tennessee, Oregon, Missouri, Florida State. Or another team? Well, clearly Tennessee was not a disappointment. That was great. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What a weird question. I think, well, I was most disappointed that Oregon lost because that was a chance for Auburn to lose. And also, Oregon, I thought, should have won that game. They were the better team throughout, and they just kind of piddled it away in the fourth. But I think long-term, the team that that had the worst week one was South Carolina because they also gave away a game they should have won. And now they have a huge injury and that's kind of, that could be a season derailing kind of loss. On the other hand, I think Missouri will probably bounce back. I'm I'm not as, you know, I'm not as bad on, on Missouri. I, I think that was just very bad scheduling. Jake. Yeah, I think Oregon, just because of the expectations and kind of, where they saw themselves losing, you know, that game is, that's just, just a big blow, especially in the way it happened. I'm going to go off the board. I don't, I'm not going to say disappointment, but I think, you know, Vatek started 0-1 after kind of how bad last year was for them and kind of the off season in the conference game too. I, I, got a, I just got a bad feeling about the whole. Yeah, they were terrible. They got killed. 
I mean, yeah, they were. I mean, the final score, I think, was nicer than the game actually was. They were never really in that. And, I mean, it just seems like there was just a lot of issues with that program in the offseason. Then you start off in a conference game week one against BC, who you really should be beating the 0-1-1. Yeah, I just, just did not fulfill me with good vibes about them this season. You know, mentioning U.S. Uh, – sorry. Mentioning South Carolina, that USC – uh, made me think about the other USC, and even though they won, I think not, with the quarterback being out for the whole year, Clay Hilton has to be, um, he's dead man walking. There, I don't so think there's nervous. any way they can, there's no way he can survive the season with a with a new quarterback in there and a, and a, and a relatively tough, you know, a, a tough schedule for a Pac-12 team. So I, it's too bad. So it's not like, a, I don't want to say it's like a disappointment because they did win the game. But the injury might just derail the whole season. Yeah, and also that's a terrible way to lose your season, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm with you on that. Like, the USC is in some big trouble. Both of them. Who owns the U- USC trademark? It's It's got to be SC, right? It's got to be the Trojans. Oh, thank you. I don't but, think either of them own them, but only one of them sparks eye rolls when they try to claim that they're USC, so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. Exactly. USC is a clothing retailer that sells branded clothing across the UK. That's is that the one we're talking about? <laughs> okay. Sorry. All right. Carter Bryant wants to know. Let's say LSU beats Texas in Austin. Who makes the playoff? An eleven and one LSU team with a road loss to Bama, or the twelve and one Big Twelve champion Longhorns? LSU. Yeah, I'm with Jake. Particularly whether they put on the the emphasis in head to head, if there's two one loss teams, both going for it and one beat the other one, yeah, Ellis, the winner of this game would clearly be in. So, yeah, I don't, I don't even think that'd be like controversial. Yeah, no, yeah, I don't. Based on what we've seen, like the committee, just how they've operated, I don't even think that's would be like rem- remotely surprising. I think it'd be. Like LSU would be ranked ahead of Texas probably the entire year, and so it wouldn't even it it wouldn't be like a case of Texas dropping or anything. I think it'd be like they just never would even be ahead of LSU in that case. If LSU's only loss is a road loss to Alabama, yeah. Because I was say the only way it would work, maybe you could say if they had a terrible loss, but then LSU would have come back and won the SEC, would have a win over Bama, so they'd be in that way as well. Yeah. I mean, cause if, like if LSU lost to Ole Miss or something like that, in a way that's even better because then you'd have a Bama win and an SEC title in order to get to one loss. So, yeah, I, I don't want to say this is an elimination game between the two of them, but it, it close. It's close. It's close to yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, you can't lose again, basically. I mean, unless just complete chaos happened. But yeah. Well, I have a question before we All go right, back yes. to the readers. Has your opinion of Miles Brennan changed based upon what we saw this past week? That sounds like a Seth question right there. <laughs> well, I think it wasn't fair to him, and I actually wrote about this. Uh, I had a little blurb about this that you can read whenever my article comes out uh, this week. But So they put him in the second half, and with Burrow, they were running all these RPOs, and one t- two touchdowns came on RPOs, the first and third one, I believe. So everything's going well. They're running their RPOs. Goes, but in the second half, Orgeron says, "Well, I don't. It's already, you know, we're winning by 100 points. 
I got to slow things down. We're going to run our offense. We're going to run the plays on our offense, but I don't want to run the RPOs. I don't want to give my quarterback a chance to throw the football. One, we could just hand the ball off and, and the clock will run and we don't beat GSU by by even more than we already are. So they gave Miles Brennan, instead of the RPOs with the reads, they gave him like zone read where he's pulling the ball to run it and not to throw it. And I don't think that was really fair to the kid, but I understand why, because they didn't want him just slinging the ball over the place in the second half in the fourth quarter. So that wasn't really fair to, to Miles. And he took some shots because they kept, he kept pulling the ball. I think he pulled it three times. And he's, that's not who he is, right? In the passing game, I thought he was, he was fine. Yeah, I don't know what else to say. He was fine. He showed he wasn't afraid to run either. Yeah, exactly. No, he, 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 it wasn't his fault. Like the, the play, the play calls were designed for him to run the ball if he were to keep it, and he did, and he and, and he was fine with it. He looked like a guy playing with backups. Seven of twelve. Like there was a couple of passes he probably should have completed, but there were some passes that guys probably should have caught. I, I my opinion didn't change at all. Like it, it's hard to. He looked like he did look bigger. I mean, like, because if you remember two years ago when he was out there, he looked like a stick figure. And that was nice to see. He looked like he could actually take a hit. Yeah, he looked and, more filled out. Yeah, so that was, I think, the most encouraging thing. But it's garbage time, and, yeah, they were putting the offense up on blocks. So uh, I'm not – and he didn't look – he didn't he didn't turn the ball over. He didn't have any truly terrible passes. You know, incomplete. He had one really awesome throw – down the field i can't remember i can't remember who it was to but it was oh it was to a Derek Dorn. just a can yeah it was like a back shoulder thing i think yeah and it just and basically just reminded me what i i think we all kind of feel about him is that if he doesn't end up being a great qb it's not going to be because of his arm i mean the dude's arm is phenomenal he can make the arm talent ability to make throws is there it's just going to be down to everything else which you're not going to see in garbage time Okay, Vinny Bartles wants to know, are closers in baseball the most overrated position in sports? I'll let Jake start with that. <laughs> um, they're not really a – the position is relief pitcher. Is, is closer as the – in a sense – yeah, because I just think, A, in a way they're all kind of failed starters, and B, they're all – you can just get – you don't need to, like, prioritize them really because you can always find someone year to year who usually can get hot and do the job. The way the game's going, it's really – it's better to have a reliever who can pitch, like, the sixth, seventh, and the eighth than one guy who pitched the ninth. So, I guess. I mean, I have to think about it a bit. But, yeah, I think that's probably fair. But, I mean, but if you do have – just like anything, if you have a really – amazing one like mariano rivera then we'll know because that's a real weapon <laughs> yeah because he's mariano rivera i don't know I, I feel that closers have been dumped on for like 30 years that they've now yeah, actually I mean, c- kind of become underrated yeah like, i don't um, like it's not like it's like i mean because uh, completely I, useless but i mean I, I do think there's something to be said for leverage stats you know also similar to in football where you have win expect win expectation where certain plays matter more because it, it flipped the win expectation the most. There's something to be said for a closer who comes in there and has a really high leverage index because the outs they got really mattered. Now, 
is a three out save when you're protecting a three run lead, the most overrated thing in baseball. Yeah, that's worthless, but coming in, protecting a one run lead. And honestly, you see it in the playoffs, having a great closer plays, having a great closer can shorten a game in the playoffs. The problem is, is that regular season baseball is different than postseason baseball. So I think if you want to win a title, you probably need a great closer or at least a very good one, but most teams aren't going to win the title. So if you're not a title contender, you don't, the last thing you need is a closer, but then it begs the question, what's the most overrated position out there. And if you think about other sports, there's really nothing you can say. Well, that, I mean, what are you going to say? Shooting guard. <laughs> I mean, there's I, just... I, I, I was thinking of one and you'll be the only one who will get the reference. Cause this kills my time. The face off guy on the cross. Yeah. I think, yeah, it's just, I think it's, Mostly because it's it's so prioritized that among some people who think like you have to win it every time, it's like no, no you really don't. It's like how do you get the ball if you can't win it? You just play defense. Like, yeah, but then again, we, we just saw Maryland lose in the postseason because they lost like seven straight faceoffs. Yeah, so, so yeah, but it's so it's the same thing with the closer. Yeah. It's like if yeah. you have a really really great one, then yeah, yeah. You know? If you got, then it's awesome. But if not, it's like. Ain't a big difference. It's so that's the thing with the closer. Like, there's not a big difference between the fifth and thirtieth best closer. Yeah, because I was just about to say that the majority of teams out there don't have that awesome Mariana Rivera closer. Yeah, it's only a very small minority of teams that do. Mariana Rivera is the best postseason pitcher in the history of baseball. He he's better than Bob Gibson. (laughs) Um, The problem is most closers forget most closers. Every other closer is not Mariana Rivera. Yeah. Right. <laughs> also, most teams aren't the Yankees and in the postseason every season. So, like, had he spent his entire career on the Orioles, they never would have discovered this awesome talent he had. <laughs> Dude won two postseason series MVPs as a closer, and it's that's just ridiculous. Yeah. Like most guys, don't, most great players don't even win any. Just yeah. This guy won two. But if I mean you look at football, like it's hard to say there's a football position that's overrated. Yeah, I don't. Like, yeah, that's the thing. You know, I mean, I mean, you could win without a great punt returner. So, but then again, we saw last year not having a punt returner really kind of sucks. Like, I mean, some people will say like running back, but I feel like at this point it's the same thing with like closer. It's like, man, we've been dumping on running backs for like ever now. <laughs> yeah, and like, like that thing's become like. They're not really overrated anymore. Everyone says they're useless. <laughs> yeah, and and like in college, if you have a Leonard Fournette, well, that's not just having a running back. That's having Leonard Fournette. Yeah, exactly. There's some interesting thoughts out there about the left tackle because I think they're they're starting to learn that really either tackle is as useful as the other, and the left tackle being the blind side of the quarterback is not as important because the blind side of the quarterback isn't based on his handedness, but based on where his first read is, which I think is very interesting. Yeah. Also, if you're, I'm saying, I kind of think centers are more important than left tackles. I know it sounds weird, but center, I think every, every play starts with the center. And if you have a bad center, your offensive line falls apart. We've seen it here before, but having a great center can cover up for a lot. Yeah, like how many of those, I mean, like those old Colts teams, I can't ever remember. I mean, not that they have bad offensive lines, but I don't know if I remember them having like an amazing left tackle, but Jeff Saturday did like make the all-pro team like every single yeah. 
year under the sun. You could say the same about tight taking... ends too, right? I mean, how many teams out there have a really great tight end that they can rely on to do all the things a tight end is called on to do versus most other teams where he's, he's treated pretty much how LSU has been treating tight ends for the last few years. He's just another lineman who blocks. Yeah, well, they are, yeah, they're almost phasing. There's like three in the NFL. Yeah, and they're also trying, like, trying to phase tight ends out of the game. Hmm. Yeah. Just the other one I was thinking about is uh, goalies in whether it's hockey or soccer. I mean, maybe lacrosse too. I don't, I don't know. I don't know about but hockey. It, I mean. It's, it's weird. Hockey, depending, well, yeah, on, it's, depending on the analyst, it goes one of two ways. Hockey – one group of analysts think they're completely overrated and they're worthless. And another group, basically they work out win shares. They're basically like the goalie is so valuable that you absolutely, he's the most important player on the ice by, by leagues. So no one can agree. The goalies are weird. I think, I think it's that in the regular season, it is, might be the most pointless. Well, I'm not pointless, but it's like in the regular season, it kind of doesn't really matter. Because if you're a great, there's so many great regular season teams who have had bad goalies, and then you watch those teams in the playoffs when they have a bad goalie, and bloop. Yeah, I, I, I think that's where it comes down. In sports where you have a playoff, what yeah, it, what it takes to win in a regular season is different than what it takes to win in a postseason in almost every sport. And I, I think that's like the next phase for analytics to start constructing teams that can win in the postseason. And I don't it's think a, it's the same with closers too. It's like yeah. no one cares if your relief pitchers suck in the regular season, because like just, I mean, yeah. but if like if all of a sudden, I mean, it's like like I think back to like some of those old Tigers teams from like a couple years ago who lost in the playoffs every year because their bullpen was off, just crapped yeah. on them. It's like man, if their bullpen had just suddenly been a bit better for two or three innings, they would have won like two titles, and no one would have cared that they're they their best reliever had like a three or whatever. Or like, even like the Nationals this year is a good example. It's like their bullpen's terrible, but if they get in the playoffs and, yeah. you know, suddenly they pitch well, well, now it's fine. <laughs> All right, bringing it back to football, given that weather is so important to this game, especially for college football where very few teams play in a dome, our friend uh, Nuwanda, also found at Rougarou LSU on Twitter, wants to know, <laughs> And I have my answer, but I want to see what you guys say. What's the difference between partly cloudy and partly sunny? Well, since we dominated this, <laughs> Seth, you get to you get to jump on this live grenade. Oh, oh thank, thank. You're welcome. You're that was much. that's for you. Partly cloudy versus partly sunny. Oh God. You want, um, some, you want some help? Well, yeah. Well, you had you said you have an answer, so let's hear it. Well, passing the book already. Look at that. Phone a friend. <laughs> partly cloudy means it's more sunny than cloudy, and partly sunny means it's more cloudy than sunny. Ooh, I like that. Uh, I, like I sign that. on to that. Look at that. Wow, that was easy. Yeah. <laughs> we knocked well, that one out of the park. Right right. Good job. All right, and you, that does it for the little bag. So, now that... Gone through the mailbag. We get to the final bit. Looking at the game, LSU is a five-point favorite on the road in DKR. I don't think they've ever played a game, or at least since it's been called DKR for sure. I know we both we all think LSU is a better team. 
But does that actually translate? How do you see this game going down? And Seth, what do you think? Ooh, 31, uh, 31 to a number that's below 31. Closer or blowout? It's, I, I oh, I want to say 31 to 10. Okay. I, I, yeah, let's, let's do it. 31 10. Jake? I've been really confident about this game. I mean, just back to lot like late last season. I like basically ever since we've started really thinking about it, I've just been really confident about it. And I'm not gonna I'm just gonna stick my neck out there. Maybe it, you know, looks bad and Texas fans listen to this can mock me in a week and if that's the case, well then have at it. But uh I mean I don't know if it's gonna I'm not I don't know if I'll go thirty one ten, but I think thirty four twenty, thirty eight twenty four, just two touchdown win for LSU. That's kind of where I am. Um, I, I think Texas's lack of running back depth is going to come back to, to bite them. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be a lot like that Miami game was last year. LSU jumps out to a big lead and then slowly starts giving it away and then puts it away in the end. I, I think 34-21 is a pretty good number, 34-24. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll spot Texas another field goal somewhere around there. I think it'll be a comfortable win, but not, but never so comfortable that the starters come out. But yeah, I'm I'm really confident in this team. I, I basically I just think LSU is a better team, and not just that. I don't see where Texas has a matchup advantage. Um, normally, you, you can say with the teams they're the weaker team. You can say, okay, well they're going to win the game by doing this thing that they do better than we do. And I just don't see the thing. It was going to be the running game. I think that was going to be the weakness, and I just don't think they can exploit the weakness the way they could. That's kind of a shame because they're not going to be at full strength. But, you know, no takebacks. So I think 34-21 is a pretty solid result. Yeah, like, like Texas fans, kind of, they're, from what I've seen, the talking point is, you know, they're, you know, Ellinger and their receiving core. And it's like, I'm not denying that it's great, but if that's your key to the game, uh, you're facing the best secondary in college football. Like, Yeah, and that's right? it's like, kind of... It's, it's like, it's a wash. If that's your, if your best advantage is a wash, I mean, yeah, I just, that's exactly where I am. Their, their biggest strength goes into our biggest strength. So that's good for running into the teeth of our defense. You know, usually I trust Vegas even when they bring out odds, but I just look at, you know, they're only giving LSU five points on that. And it just seems way too low. That's a, that's a lot on the road. Yeah. No, the, I, that was, three I was point bonus on the road. They're saying that's an eight point game. Mm. I mean, yeah. Vegas really favors LSU. Yeah, I was I was a bit like when it came out, I was surprised that it, I kind of expected like at least when it started to be like a, a like it was just a flip. Like it started at like zero or one, and then maybe it'd get to three or four for LSU by game time. But yeah, five and a half on a Tuesday against I mean Texas is a top ten team. Yeah, Texas is a really good team. I don't think they're top ten good. I think that's another thing. Yeah, is, no, I don't. I don't and also, I don't think they're at full strength. I think at the end of the day, this is the number – they'll finish the season like number 20. And I think LSU is playoff caliber good. And I think that's the difference. This is not to say that Texas is a bad team or a bad program. I think they're a great program and a, and a really good team this year. I just don't think they're quite there yet. And also, teams that tend to have a giant improvement one year tend to fall back the next Expecting them to fall back a little bit. This is going to be their their first step backwards. So yeah, I think the game in Baton Rouge next year is more yeah intriguing. Firstly, as far as you know, 
I think that one's going to be, that one will, I mean, who knows, but that one I have a feeling will be more of a real back and forth kind of coin. Yeah, that's a real long way away, but I, I agree. Texas at that point will be returning a lot of people. And the, I am not nearly as confident about that game. Yeah. Which is weird because that's the one that's in Baton Rouge and this is the one in. Yeah, Austin, but, it's a, but that's these, are the, these are the rosters they gave us. So yep. go Tigers. Yeah.